morning, everyone. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes this morning, and uh, we start out with a statement. I have a blank in it this week because each week we're taking a word out so that we would own this particular statement. It has a lot of um, good things to say in it, and the statement, as soon as we get it up, that blank. So take a look at this. Wisdom is blank applied biblical knowledge. And this focuses on the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. Wisdom has nothing to do with age or experience. Wisdom from God's perspective has everything to do with taking his word, internalizing it, and then living it, applying it. And if you can correctly do that, God says you are wise. And we are striving to be wise in this world, wise in relationship to God, wise in relationship to one another. And the only way we can do that is to internalize his word and live it. So wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. Now, last week, I ran into a problem. And this happens every now and again. Uh, I tried to do the entirety of chapter 3 in one service, and I should know better. Because I started to talk about Romans 8.28. And the moment I started talking about Romans 8.28, I realized I cannot just for five seconds say, hey, look up Romans 8.28 and then go on with the rest of the message. I got stuck and I started talking about Romans 8.28. Well, I'm going to do this a little bit differently this morning. I'm going to talk about Romans 8.28 at the very beginning and hopefully get it all over with and then move on to the rest of chapter 3. Now, as we saw last week, it is extremely comforting to know that God intends even evil things for our good, as seen in Romans 8.28, and the story of Joseph, and I was reminded last week of the story of Joseph, Joseph and his comment out of chapter 50, which is the ending of the book of Genesis, the ending of Joseph's life with his brothers, in which, if you remember back to the story of Joseph and his brothers, Joseph was... Um, favored by Isaac, uh, excuse me, favored by Jacob, and um, his brothers got jealous and eventually wanted to kill him, but instead of killing him, put him in a pit, sold him into slavery. Joseph then ends up in Egypt as a slave, then becomes uh, a servant in Potiphar's house, then becomes a slave again, imprisoned, and then is elevated to the second most powerful person in Egypt because of the dreams that God had given him and the interpretations that God had given him because Joseph ended up saving all of Egypt and all the surrounding town or all the surrounding countryside because of his planning for the famine. And when Joseph and his brothers finally connect again towards the end of the story, Joseph has this amazing statement in Genesis, 20 verse, uh, Genesis 50, verse 20, in which he says, you plotted evil against me. He's talking to his brothers, his 11 brothers, 10 brothers plus, plus his extra brother. Um, you plotted evil against me, but God turned it to good in order to preserve the lives of many people who are alive today because of what had happened. If those events had not happened in Joseph's life, which were painful, which were wrong, which were evil, if they had not occurred, God would not have been able to raise him up and make him the second most powerful person in all of Egypt to save hundreds of thousands of people from famine. 
It takes a very wise individual to look at their lives and say, this really sucked that this happened. This was horrible that this happened. This should not have happened. This was wrong that it happened. This hurt when it happened. To look at those pains and trials and hurts of life and come to the conclusion, if it was no other way, I would not be here today. Changed and closer to God. Joseph knew that this drew him closer to God and closer to being the right person for the right task at hand. So we didn't look at that with bitterness. He could have thrown his brothers into prison. He could have had them killed and executed. Revenge. Oh, that would have been sweet. That would have been like a great ending to the story. Joseph, the most powerful person in Egypt, finally punishes those brothers who 30 years earlier had sold him into slavery. And we all would have gone, yeah, justified, right. But he had wisdom. God had changed him. He applied what he knew about God and God's forgiveness and patience and love and was so changed by it that the only thing he could do with his brothers was apply it to them as well. Now, we saw that all unfold in the first part of chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. That's sort of the summary of where we were last week. And from a philosophical perspective, remember Solomon is really approaching the book of Ecclesiastes from a perspective where there is no God. You're just living your life to live your life. And so a lot of the things that he has to say has to do with this idea of I'm living without the context of a relationship with God. So the world out there, how do they live? How do they interact with each other? How do they view life? And so even though they seem to have this repetitive behavior, as we saw last week, we're born, we die, we sing, we cry, we plant, we pluck, we kill, we heal, we break down, we build up, we weep, we laugh, we mourn, we dance, we cast away stones, we gather them, we embrace, we refrain, we seek, we lose, we keep, we cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time to war, a time to peace. It seems as though everything is just simply this one large repetitive story that we're always going through with no end in sight. It just simply keeps going and then we die and then we end. The world believes wrongly that death is that final step of life. And what's the worst that can happen to you? You die. No. There was something far worse than dying. And you mean, oh, you mean living in this repetitive world like Groundhog Day where every day feels the same and I don't accomplish anything. No, 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 no. There was something far worse than Groundhog Day scenario. There was something far worse than a repetitive cycle of never seeming to get ahead. There was something far worse than the evils and trials and injustices done to you in this life. There was something far worse than death itself. What could that be? That is what we're looking at in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 16. God has set himself as a judge. 
And if you thought this life was hard, if you thought this life was at all unfair and challenging and difficult and mean to you, if you felt the cards were uh, stacked against you in this life, if you have no relationship with God, I've got news for you. It is going to get far worse when God reveals himself as judge. Because as judge, he is fair. As judge, he's always right. As judge, he has all the information. Everything is disclosed to him. As judge, he's making the perfect informed decision of whether or not you are innocent or guilty. And he never makes a mistake. Starting in verse 16... Of chapter 3, Solomon says, Moreover, not only do we have to give an account, but moreover, he says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I think we can, I think I'm safe in bringing this up since it's happened a while ago, but does anyone remember the O.J. Simpson trials? Some of us, yeah. You always have to say, in every one of these scenarios of a public case, that watching it on TV, you're not seeing everything. Okay, we, we all admit that. But I've yet to meet someone who is honest that says, OJ was completely innocent. I've yet, to, yet to, to meet someone who can honestly say before God they believe he was innocent. He was found innocent by a trial by jury. I get that, and I uphold that American value system and, and support it and defended it, and it's the best that we have. But even the best that we have can get it wrong sometimes, right? Of course it can get it wrong. I mean, it, it can get it wrong in your favor. Like, oh, the police officer didn't, didn't show up for your ticket case, and so it gets dismissed even though you were guilty. Or they can arrest the wrong person and that person goes to prison and may ultimately be executed for a crime they truly did not commit. It's our best attempt at judging. And sometimes we get it wrong. I don't think we get it wrong the majority of times, but I think we do get it wrong both ways where it helps the innocent and it helps the guilty and it punishes the innocent and saves the guilty. And so I think that's where Solomon is coming from. And this is coming from a guy who has examples of being an amazing judge. Remember that story where two women both had bore a child same day and they go to sleep and somehow they're in the same room or something happens and one of the children dies at night and so Solomon gets this case before him that one of the wives, one of the mothers stole the baby and replaced the dead baby. And, and who knows who's whose? I mean, there was no tag on the foot. There was no uh, wristband. There was no DNA test. There was no footprint to prove who was who. And so what was Solomon's decision? Take the live child, cut it in half, and give each a piece. Whoa. 
But Solomon, already being gifted the wisest person, insight into what is right and wrong, God's truth, knew that at that moment, the true mother would sacrifice her pleasure of holding the child for life, giving that child life. So he knows that this world is filled with wickedness and injustice, even at times where there should be great righteousness and rightness. He sees it all around him. It says in verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is time for every matter and for every work. God will judge the righteous and the wicked alike. No one, no one escapes God's audience as judge. No one escapes it. Everyone must face God as judge. And it doesn't matter if you deny that there's a God that exists. I will wager that you will face him one day. I have great confidence that if you ignore him and deny him and reject him and alter his character and change him into a God of your own liking, you will get slapped upside the head and you will wake up in front of a God who is holy, 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 and you will be in terror for your life. Well, no, you won't be in terror for your life because you're dead. You will be in terror for an eternity outside of hope, Comfort, peace, and joy. You will be in the hands of an angry God who has the means to execute the most painful sentence ever given. Eternal death. Dying eternally in the pains and fires of hell. And will he be right in that judgment? Will he be justified in that judgment? Absolutely. Because his insight is perfection. You can deceive others. You can deceive everyone. You can hide your sin. You can hide your guilt. You can pretend that your life is awesome and it's full of charity and goodness. You can hide that from everybody. But you cannot hide your heart from God. We do a great job pretending. <laughs> we, we can pretend and put on a face and put on an attitude, and, and we've all done it. We've all done it, and we don't know how to switch it in a second. You can be in an argument in a car with everyone in the back seat, complaining and complaining and complaining, and the moment that officer pulls you over because you were speeding, I guarantee you, your attitude, if you're a sane person, will change to, oh, hello, officer. What can I do for you? Oh, I didn't know. Well, your arms were flaying around like this, and I thought you were hitting the people in the back seat. But you can switch it in a second and fool people around you. But you cannot fool God. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. There is a time for every matter and for every work. It says in verse 18, I said in my heart. So he's contemplating these things. He's reasoning through these things. He sees 
experience and he sees God's experience through his word and he's making a connection here. He is correctly applying biblical knowledge in which he says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they must see that they themselves are but beasts. It's a strange thing for Solomon to conclude that left to yourself without God, the right conclusion that you'll have is there's no difference between me and the beasts of the field. We both strive to survive. It's hard to survive. There's unfair circumstances surrounding us, and there always seems to be something more powerful than you that will kill you. And so Solomon says, for someone without God, the natural conclusion is we're the same as the beasts. There's no difference. Now, from God's perspective, are we the same as an animal? We share similarities. You know, we breathe oxygen, we have blood, and I mean, there's similarities. But we are not innately the same. Now, we know from the rest of Scripture that there is one difference And it's not because we can use tools. It's not because we have a great complex communication or or a, a cultural, social, interactive status with each other. No, it is nothing biological or cultural. The difference between us and the beasts of the field, all the rest of the animal kingdom, is that we uniquely, every one of us, share something in common called the image of God. He has placed in us our nature, a spirit that desires to worship God and to be loved by God and to have a relationship with God. The beasts of the field, the animals, they don't have that. They have instinct that makes them do this, 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 and this. And we as humanity have an ability to sometimes control and manage that and tame it. But we never own it. But God has created in us his image, to know righteousness and holiness and rightness and wrongness and a longing for a relationship with God that as cute as your animals at home may be, they do not have a soul. They are not made in the image of God. They are not redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ because they have not sinned against God. We have. We've sinned against his righteousness and holiness. But without that knowledge of Scripture and God's revelation about his image in us, that desire for holiness and righteousness, we would conclude that the world naturally evolved from evolution and we go through life. Sometimes we have a good day. Sometimes we have a bad day. But we're all going to have the day when we die. That's the conclusion. There's no real difference. Verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts in the same is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. You can see how Solomon is putting together this masterful argument that not only is life repetitive for you, 
But when you take into account everything surrounding you, all of nature, all of creation, guess what? It's just as repetitive. You're born, you live, you accumulate, you die, and your stuff's given away or sold. Or, you know, something. You're just, you don't take it with you. And Solomon's already talked about the fact that you can mass this huge fortune, but guess what? You die, and then it's gone. Someone else takes care of it or squanders it. So he looks at nature and concludes, without a relationship with God, everything goes through that repetitive cycle of living, breathing, dying. Born, living, breathing, dying. Everything does. We see it all around us. And then, um, just to make sure we feel good, he says in verse 20, all, so he's making an, an inclusive term, everyone, all, all go to one place. Sounds a little promising. All are from dust, and all to dust return. Uh, That wasn't where I was hoping he was going. I'd hope he was going, hey, we all have one place to go. Um, You know, maybe, maybe heaven. No. One thing clearly happens to everything. It falls apart, dies, and turns back to dust. I told you last week that I think Solomon has taken us from the deepest of the valley to a mountaintop and that we're going to stay at the mountaintops. Every now and again when you get to a mountaintop, there's always these little dips, always these little crevines and crevasses and hollers that you have to kind of go through in order to get back up to the next top. So I think we're at a moment where he's being Not just honest, but he is being so revealing of the condition of man that there are many people, even within Christian circles, that hate that message of death and dust. But it's true. It's wisdom to live in light of that. So he concludes that, yeah, hey, we're... Us and the beasts, we go through this repetitive cycle. We're a lot alike. We live. We're born. We live. Uh, we break down. We die. And in the end, we all return to dust. It says in verse 21, and here's his connection to the spiritual side of things. He says, for who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So from the perspective of someone without God, he has asked a very brutal question. In the end, we all go through this cycle and we all die, we all turn to dust, but what happens to our spirit? Does our spirit, a human spirit, have a different ending than the spirit of the beast of the field, of the rest of nature? Is there any difference whatsoever? So we ask that general question. Is there something different for us than what is already visible and seen in the rest of nature? Is there any difference? Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward to the, and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth? So I saw a concluding application of wisdom here. So I saw 
that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So he concludes, I'm not concluded, he concluded, that in the end, once again, without God, the best you have in this life is to enjoy your work, enjoy your life, find whatever crumb of happiness you can find, and then find the next one, and the next one, and the next one, because that's the best you can do. But he ends with the probing question, who can bring him? Who can bring mankind? Who can bring the person next to you without God? Who can help them see and understand what will be after him? What happens when he dies? Do you get the picture here? Solomon is actually putting out a call. Who's going to tell the world around you that there is something after death? Now, I have some verses that will build upon that. And I want you to notice that as I go through these verses, and they'll all be on the screen, that every single one of these verses are going to be from the New Testament. I chose this specifically for a reason. Why we are looking at New Testament verses instead of a mixture of both new and old. And the reason being is there is a mentality, even within the Christian world, that the Old Testament is all about God as judge. And the New Testament is about God as love. <laughs> Feeling, emotion, relationship, giving a break. Whereas the truth, when you evaluate verse by verse by verse, the New Testament talks far more about judgment than the Old Testament does. So these verses in the New Testament are going to get us to that connection to who's going to tell people what really is going to happen after life. And I'll give you the answer right now. We'll get to the answer at the end, but I'll give you the answer right now. You're supposed to do that. You are supposed to do that. You are supposed to tell the people around you what happens after all this is done. That burden is on you to perform, for you to communicate, for you to educate, for you to reveal to the ones around you, not only your loved ones and family, but your friends and those to the outermost parts of the world. You are responsible for communicating Solomon's call. Who's going to tell them what happens after? You are. And don't for one second, don't for one second say, Tim, isn't that what we pay you to do? <laughs> My job is to equip you to do that. My job is an encourager and teacher and, and one that walks alongside of you and says, hey, oh, so you're having a tough time with that person at work? Have you tried this? Prayer. It's a miracle worker when you submit yourself before God in prayer 
for the person instead of thinking how to get even with them. So we're, we're, we're way down the line, but we're going to get back to these verses. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 5, Peter says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, you're going to see a theme in these verses about living in the dead, and uh, it's scary enough to know that you're going to go before a judge in the living. But death does not free you from judgment. Death does not free you from being face-to-face with a judge. And so Peter says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, whether you're alive or dead, God is ready to judge. Ready to judge. He says in Romans 14, 9, and all of these verses are uh, online in our Bible app that if you need to go back to them, you can. Romans 14, 9, for this reason, he's talking about salvation before this, for this reason, Christ died and returned to life that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. This is a pretty scary verse. Read that again. For this reason, Christ died and returned to life that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. I think we would generally admit that here and now, Jesus Christ is our Lord. He has authority. He has the right to demand from us whatever he wants to demand. It's going to be good and beautiful in his eyes, but he's Lord. Do you know that he's Lord even when you're dead? You cannot escape the sovereignty of God. Death does not free you from the relationship of creature and creator. It does not separate you from the God of love and the God of justice. He is still Lord, and as Lord, has command over what you do, over what you think, over what you say. Death does not free you from that relationship that God is God, and you are not. He is the Lord of the living and the dead, all-encompassing. Remember, there, remember Abraham Kuyper's favorite quote that I love to death is there is not a single inch in this entire universe that God does not say, it's mine. In my hand, it's mine, including the dead. The dead are his. And if you die outside of Christ, your life Your existence does not get easier at death. A lot of us believe, and and we comfort people like, oh, you know, you've had a hard life. You'll die. You'll finally be resting. Rest in peace. Oh, my goodness. There is no resting in peace for the unbeliever. There is no rest. There is no peace. It is before the judge with a trial and then judgment. There is no rest in peace for the wicked. He is Lord of the living and the dead. Later on in Romans 14, verse 12, he says, So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Each of us will stand before God individually, singularly, without any backup, 
without mom or dad or grandma and grandpa or my, my favorite aunt coming to my aid. It is me and me alone. It is you and you alone, and you have no backup. You can't say, oh, you know, my mom always helped me. My mom always saved me. Where, where is she? There's none of that. It is you and God alone. Well, I shouldn't say it's you and God alone. It's you before God, by yourself, surrounded by all of creation, watching. It's not a closed court meeting. Your entire life is opened up before everything. And not just the parts you've already shared that are embarrassing, but the parts that you've hidden from everyone. Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Timothy 4, 1. I charge you, this is Paul talking to Timothy, I charge you. These are strong words. It's almost like one of those things, pay attention. This is the conclusion. Listen. Paul says, I charge you. Timothy, this is your duty to perform and to think about and to follow. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearance and the kingdom. I charge you before God. This is going to happen. This is real in light of everything. It will occur. He's the judge of the living and the dead. He's judge. He's judge. And then in James 5, 9, James says, and I put this in here just because I needed the encouragement, do not complain about one another, brothers, so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge is standing at the door. sobering when are you going to meet God as judge when are you going to meet him as judge does anybody know his appointed time which is going to be different for all of us unless the world all ends at once and Jesus comes back and then we're before the judge but you're going to meet him at his appointed time when he calls you home he is standing at door, which means he's not passive. He's not just simply, oh, my time, I got to get up and get there. Oh, oh, there's a new appointment on the calendar. Tim's here today. Oh, I didn't know that. No, God is ready, and he's not ready in a mean-spirited way, but he is like, Tim, I am ready for you. At the appointed time, there is not going to be this lull in trying to figure out what I'm going to do with you, Tim. I know exactly what I'm going to do with you. You're going to stand before my throne, and you will be judged. No doubt in that. No hesitation on his part. He is ready. Of course, that begs the question, right? You know the question. If he's ready, are you ready? Are you ready to face God as judge? And I don't say this only to scare you. I say this 
so that you would be reassured that your faith in Jesus Christ will save you not just from sufferings in this life and give you peace and joy in this life, but that when you face him as a standing judge one day, according to his appointed time, that you would be ready to say, as a believer, my accuser can say anything he wants. My defender has already paid it in blood. And that is the gift of Jesus Christ and eternal life. And it's something to take home this morning. From man's perspective, we just live life to the fullest. It is all meaningless in the end. Doesn't matter what happens, what you do, what you accomplish, what you don't accomplish. We all die. We're all forgotten. A hundred years later, no one remembers a thing about us, except maybe a date of our birth, a name, and when we died, who we married, and our kids. Basic genealogy stuff that you know about from your family from 300 years ago. That's as much as they're going to know about you. So might as well just live it up, eat, drink, and marry, because tomorrow we die. Doesn't matter from man's perspective. But from God's perspective, we still live life to the fullest, knowing that God will judge, and it all has a point. The repetitive things that we experience all have a point. The trials and sufferings that we experience, the imprisonments, the slavery that we experience, the unfairness, the wickedness that we experience, the, that's not right. All those things that we experience all have a point. When God is part of the equation of how we live life. So be aware that God will judge. And be aware that when Christ brings peace into this life of yours, that peace and that relationship extends all into eternity. And you do not stand alone when you face God as judge. You have the Son of God as your defense, as your witness, and the one who paid the price with his own death for your sins. So I bring you back to Solomon's question at the end of chapter 3. So I saw that there is nothing better than man should rejoice in his work, and that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Who's going to tell the people around you the rest of God's redemptive story? At that point, you should raise your hand and say, send me. I'll do it. Let's pray as the band comes up. Let's stand. Father, you are a magnificent, eternal, loving Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, and you have revealed to us Thankfully, you've revealed to us your mercy and your tenderness. Help us, Father, to be as wise as Solomon and answer the call. We want to be that person, Father, that brings an answer to what happens after this repetitive life. It's the judgment. And may we all be found hidden in the righteousness and robed glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name all of God's people said, Amen.